Again, if you're visiting, my name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor. Glad you're here. Hope you feel quickly at home. Turn with me, if you would, in your copy of the Scripture to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy should be easy enough to find. It's the fifth book in the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Number five is Deuteronomy. This morning we start a new sermon series titled The King and His People. It comes from the theme that runs throughout the book. The title comes from the theme that runs throughout the book. That is that the king is moving his citizens, his people, into their kingdom, their rightful inheritance of the promised land. Of course, we know from our New Testament perspective that Jesus is the divine king ruling over not only Israel, but all of creation. And as we explore the story of Deuteronomy, we'll discover that the king is faithful, the king is good, the king is merciful, and he is so to not only Israel, but to all people, to all people. Interestingly, Deuteronomy was the book from which Christ most often quoted in his ministry. And I'm eager to dig in, make our way through the book uh, for the foreseeable future. I don't, the uh, next couple months anyway. I'm going to begin reading in uh, chapter 1, verse 1. These are the words of Moses. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan, that is, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban and Hazaroth, and Dezahab. And then there's the parenthetical statement. Verse 2, parenthetically, it takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir Road. Verse 3, in the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. This was after he had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, and at Edri had defeated Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtoreth. East of the Jordan, in the territory of Moab, Moses began to expound this law saying, the Lord our God said to us at Horeb, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the, Ephraim, uh, the Aramites, Amorites, sorry. Go to all the neighboring peoples in the Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Degev, and along the coast to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon as far as the great river, the Euphrates. And so that's the geographic uh, parameters of the promised land spelled out there. Verse 8, see, I've given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land. The Lord swore that he'd give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. We'll pause there for just a minute. In verse 5, we read what best describes the historic context of this book. This was a time in which, quote, Moses expounded the law. Moses began to expound the law. The name Deuteronomy loosely means second law. Not that there was a first law, now Moses is going to share with them the second law, but rather that he had already told them the law once, and now he's going to revisit it for a second time. The first time Israel heard God's law was recorded in the book of Exodus. If you're familiar with Israel's history, you'll remember Israel exited Egypt, camped at the base of Mount Sinai, which is in this passage called Horeb. Uh, it wasn't uncommon for geographies to have dual names, or for that matter, for people to have more than one name, right? So Mount Sinai is also Mount Horeb. While there at the base of Mount Horeb, Moses goes up on the mountain and comes back with the Ten Commandments. That was the first time 
that he expounded the law to Israel. Now, the second time, the second revisiting of the law is in the book of Deuteronomy. Why revisit the law at this point? Well, Moses wants to revisit the law at this point because Israel's getting ready for a new chapter. They're, they're getting ready to enter the promised land. And so as we open Deuteronomy and begin reading, it's been some 40 years since Israel was saved out of Egypt. And during those 40 years, Israel wandered in the wilderness because of their disobedience to God's law. But now it's time to enter the promised land, and the best preparation for receiving their, in their inheritance is revisiting God's law. Let me say that again. The best preparation for the, God's people receiving their inheritance was Moses revisiting God's law with them. Israel was to establish God's kingdom on earth. The law is an expression of the character and purposes of their king, God, which means to successfully establish the kingdom of God, to be the citizens of God, we've got to know the character and person of God. We've got to know his law. In this way, the law was not seen as a burden to be born, but a blessing to be embraced. Even their songs pointed out that the law was a blessing. So on the screen is a portion of Psalm 19. It reads, the law of the Lord is perfect. How do we, how, what's our perception of God's law? Their percept, they sang about it, in fact. Their poets talked about it. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making the wise simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. What's our perspective on, on God's law? Do we see it as perfect, refreshing, trustworthy, wise, joyful, joyous, radiant, pure, enduring, firm, and righteous? I'm afraid too many Christians view the law as bothersome at best, outmoded at worst. How do we view the law of God as a burden or a blessing? And, and as you're weighing that question, one way, one indication of, of how we might view God's law is how much time we spend in the Old Testament. I'll, for that matter, how many of us have ever said, oh gosh, I, I see that to a friend or a family member or to our kids or our parents or our grandparents. Man, I see you're kind of down in the mouth. Let me offer you something from the book of Deuteronomy. Yeah, I'll take, I'll take the laughing as an affirmation of suspicion, right? Do we see God's law as perfect and refreshing and trustworthy and wise and right and joyous, radiant, pure, enduring, firm, righteous? Let's be honest, if the best preparation for Israel receiving and securing their inheritance was knowing the law of God, what might be the best preparation for God's people today to receiving our inheritance? What might thwart us from entering the inheritance of God? And if Jesus quoted heavily from the book of Deuteronomy, what might that say about the importance of the book for our lives? 
it seems fairly straightforward that for God's people still today that are knowing God's law and receiving the inheritance that he has for us, his blessings, that knowing God's law and receiving his blessings are necessarily and inseparably linked. So that's the historic context of this book. Moses is, is stepping to the plate. They're on the edge of the promised land. He's going to deliver the law of God. What about the geographic context of this book, right? So I get a lot recently of pushback about my maps. I want you to know I worked really hard to find this map. <laughs> this is a beautiful map of the ancient world and the wanderings of the Israelites in the wilderness. So at the bottom of the map in the middle, you'll see Mount Sinai is identified, Mount Horeb. That's where Moses goes up and comes down uh, with the Ten Commandments. First, we learn from today's passage that Israel, verse 1, chapter 1, is in the wilderness. They're not yet in the promised land. They're in the wilderness, and they're east of the Jordan River. The Jordan dumps into the, the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea, top right. And so they're on the east side. They're on the Moab side, we're told. They're in the Arabah, or what was Moab. That's the geographic context. They're about to cross over. They're about to go into the western, west of the Jordan and take possession of the promised land. Parenthetically, and I find this fascinating, about the context given to open the book. Verse 2. By the way, parenthetically, right? By the way, it takes, it takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir Road. So Horeb is at the bottom of the mount, map, Mount Sinai, right? Kadesh, you see, is due north of it. That's the, it's a wilderness area. And he drops that in there. Hey, by the way, don't forget, it only takes 11 days to make this trek. Why does this matter? Why point out this geography? All right, so I think here's why. Horeb's where they received the law. They march north to Kadesh Barnea, and from there they send spies into the land. It's Numbers chapter 14, they seen spies into the land. They're getting ready. 40 years before he's, he's addressing them now, Deuteronomy 1, 40 years prior to that, they had been in Kadesh, having walked from Horeb. Only 11 days it took them. Then they send spies into the land to say, well, what kind of land is this God's giving us? The spies go into the land. There's 12 spies, one from each of the tribes of Israel. They come back with the report. There are giants in the land, and all the cities are fortified. In Israel, box. They decide not to go in. They're filled with doubt and fear, and they turn around emotionally, and they want to physically, and they want to go back to Egypt. On the screen is a section from Numbers 14 that describes their response to the report they received from the spies. That night, all the members of the community raised their voice as, and wept. They wept. The land was truly fruitful, right? It was bountiful, milk and honey and grapes, and it's a rich land. They don't say, this is ours, and they're not pumped. They're terrified. All their Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, so now they're mad at their leaders. And the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. That's an option too. Better that we were dead now. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. He's not able is what they're saying. God can't do this. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. 
It's interesting. This has slipped in as a, as a parenthetical comment. By the, way, by, the, by the way, don't forget, it's a very short trek from Horeb to Kadesh. Israel didn't go back to Egypt. They didn't go forward either into the promised land. No, they wandered aimlessly in the wilderness for 40 years because of their doubt in God's ability to do what he said he would do and their fear of the circumstances and the people that would have to be overcome. God decided for that reason, because of their doubt and fear, that they'd not enter the promised land, but that they would roam until that generation died out. Right? They longed to go back to Egypt and die, or they longed to die in the wilderness, and God said, okay. We should ask ourselves what we long for. We should make sure it's life. Ever feel sidetracked in life by doubt that God's able to provide or fear of the circumstances you're facing? Israel was sidetracked, so sidetracked that what should have taken just 11 days took 14,600 days. That's 40 years approximately. That's what doubt and fear do to us. They make very slow our progress towards experiencing the blessings of God. Doubt and fear undermine our progress in experiencing the blessings of God. Doubt and fear made Israel long for what they knew. What they knew was enslavement. What they knew was the 11 days they just spent in the wilderness. They opted because of doubt and fear for what they knew over what they didn't know that required courage, confidence in God's goodness. And they got stuck in the wilderness. Some of us may be stuck in the wilderness, circling through the same old sinful patterns because of doubt and fear. Well, could God really provide for me if I take a courageous step and move forward with him in obedience? How might doubt in God's ability and fear of people or circumstances be holding us back from experiencing the blessings that God has for us? Where are we longing for a life of enslavement to sin because we know what that involves rather than courageously laying hold of God's blessings. All right, let's press on. Verse nine. Now when he says in verse nine at that time, he's talking about the time prior, 40 years prior, when they were at the base of Horeb. So at that time I said to you, you're too heavy a burden for me to carry alone. The Lord your God has increased your numbers so that today you're as numerous as the stars in the sky. May the Lord, the God of your ancestors, increase you a thousand times and bless you as he promised. But how can I bear your problems and your burdens and your disputes all by myself? Choose some wise, understanding, and respected men from each of your tribes, and I'll set them over you. You answered me at that time, what you propose is, uh, to do is good. So I took the leading men of your tribes, wise and respected men, and appointed them to have authority over you as commanders of thousands and hundreds and fifties and of tens and as tribal officials. And I charged your judges. So he appoints these judges at that time with this charge. Quote, hear the disputes between your people and judge fairly, whether the case is between two Israelites or between an Israelite and a foreigner residing among you. Don't show partiality in judging. Hear both small and great. Don't be afraid of anyone, for judgment belongs to God. 
In other words, don't let your judgments bend to the fear or the pressure you might be receiving. Bring me any case too hard for you, and I will hear it. And at that time, I'll tell you everything you were to do. All right, so now let's remember the context, uh, the historic and the geographic context, so that we make sure we understand how the first eight verses of this chapter connect to the second ten verses. Because I think it can feel like, wow, he jumps from, I'm about to tell you the law, to here are your judges. So how do these connect? And I think they connect with a, in a pretty straightforward fashion. So in Moses' wisdom, the best preparation for getting these people ready to enter the promised land is to revisit the law. But Moses' concern appears to be that the law and their understanding of it will simply be academic. That they'll only have a head knowledge of the law. And, and by the way, what we're aiming at this morning is not simply head knowledge. The hope and prayers of the people of Golan Bible Church is that when we hear God's word, that we understand it and that we act on it. That appears to be what Moses is saying is going on here. He appears to be saying, here's the law and here's how you experience it. Uh, here's how it's exercised among you. Here, here's how I set up a community that will take action on the law and hold up the law. It's not enough to know what's right. What's written in the law is certainly right, but God's people must do what's right. They must take action on, on the law. And Moses reviews the judicial system that he put in place some 40 years earlier and that stood in place for their wanderings in the wilderness. He's saying, that's going to work for you as you enter the promised land. Here's the law, and here's how you'll execute it. Here's how you'll establish a community that'll stand on the law. It's not a complicated system. He gets wise and respected leaders, men, and uh, he divides the groups up into thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens, tribal officials, and he charges them. It's a fairly simplistic system. The cases that are less complex are overseen by men that are overseeing fewer numbers of people. And then as the, the cases are more complex and more judicial wisdoms needed to be exercised, then leaders of hundreds and thousands, it's an appellate court system, basically. He says, I'll hear the, the worst cases. Bring me the worst cases. So Moses is reviewing the system because he knows it's of paramount importance that they continue to prioritize justice as they enter the land. I wonder, do we as God's people, the spiritual descendants of those who took possession of the land, both know the law and prioritize its its implementation. Note that Moses says that uh, he can't be the sole judge because he's getting crushed by the burdens and disputes of the people. God's kept his promise to the people. They're as numerous as the stars in the sky. If you're unfamiliar with that verbiage, it's the verbiage that was spoken to Abram when God said, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world through you. I'm going I'm to multiply you. He didn't have a kid at that time. And Sarah, his wife, was barren, was unable to conceive. Yet he's going to be the... Uh, he's going to have so many kids, they're going to outnumber the stars of the sky. Well, Moses is saying, that's happened. God's kept his word, and you're crushing me. I can't be your only judge, so I'm going to raise up judges, and he does so. The short of it is, if justice is going to be a reality, more people have to champion it. The same is true this morning. It can't only be the work of judges. We have some judges that attend our church 
you know the, the saying, uh, um, justice moves slowly? Well, it's never moved more slowly than during COVID. I mean, if you're waiting on a court date, the, the judicial system's way back out. It's, it's a crushing burden, frankly, in, in our world uh, to execute justice and be a part of the judicial system. It's very, it's very heavy. It's very complex. For that reason, judges can't be the only one doing justice, right? Citizens must call for justice and support justice. So Moses appoints judges to help apply the law so that his people will live by the law. Note that the charge that Moses gave to the judges, they're to be fair, impartial, and unafraid. They were to judge fairly whether the dispute was between two Israelites or an Israelite and a foreigner. This is no small matter, don't blow by this. We have a tendency to look back on the Old Testament narrative and think, well, God played favorites. He chose one nation, and he just loves them and no one else, and that's not the case. God chose Israel for special service, not simply special favor. And we see that clearly in the judiciary. They were to judge rightly, fairly, impartially, whether it was two Israelites standing before the judge or an Israelite and a foreigner. They were to be impartial. Justice was to be blind, whether it's a wealthy person or a poor person, a person of small influence or great influence. It's spelled out here. We see that God loves all people. And the judiciary of Israel was to reflect that. So in verse 8, 1 through 8, we see the law, its primacy. Verses 9 through 18, we see the judiciary. This is how it's going to be executed and carried out. It only stands to reason that if God's law is a blessing to his people, then justice is essential for God's people to experience that blessing. Does that make sense? God's people must be those who do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. Micah 6.8. Something we love to parrot. Are we living it out? Are we champions of justice as God's people? Do people, when they rub up against us, see that we have clarion vision on what is right and good and that we act on that? We act in accordance with it. And those who are marginalized and weak and lack influence, do we stand up for them? Are we fighting the good fight? Or are we preserving privilege? In case you're unfamiliar with Israel's history, they do not live up to Deuteronomy 1.1. In fact, they fail to do justice and they get the boot out of their own promised land. They don't stay long in the inheritance God had for them. They miss out on blessings. When we, as God's people, fail to champion justice, we fail to fully experience his blessings. But to the extent we are champions of justice, when our lives, when people rub up against us and they come away getting a sense that the law of God is perfect and refreshing and trustworthy and wise and right and joyous and radiant and pure and enduring and firm and righteous, when that's our life, then the blessings of God will come. And it'll come in our community and in our nation. Do we do justice? Or do we do partiality? Do we show favoritism and support systems that preserve privilege 
or do we advocate for the weak and the marginalized? Just as it was not enough for God's people to know the law, it's not enough in our age for God's people to know right doctrine. It is not enough in 21st century church for us to only know right doctrine. Is doctrine important? Yep, it's important. But it's not sufficient. We must both know right doctrine and, and live by it. It's not enough to know that God is just and take great comfort in the fact he sent Christ to, to die in our place, upholding the law and demonstrating mercy. That's something God's done. That's who God is. He's a just judge. It's not enough to know that. We must demonstrate him. We must emulate his character, his conduct, his concerns. If we want to experience his goodness. Head knowledge is not sufficient for righteousness. God wants us to live out our doctrine, prioritizing right behavior, specifically as champions of justice. Partiality, the preservation of privilege, is in direct competition with the establishment of justice. That's why Moses says, judge fairly. Do you know the early church built upon this deuteronomic pattern as the church grew? Acts chapter 6. So many people had come to faith in Jesus and they had come from so many different cultures that partiality was being shown. Acts chapter 6, read it later today. The Hebraic, or the Hellenistic Jews, that's the Greek Jews, they're Gentile converts to Christianity, were frustrated, feeling like their widows had been left out of the daily distribution of food. Widows were, were receiving care from the church. They were being fed by the church. Compassion ministry was a mark and is to be a mark of the church. But in Acts chapter 6, this fight breaks out between the Hellenistic believers and the, the Hebrew believers, the Israelite believers, and the Hellenistic, the Greek converts to Christianity are complaining that their widows are being left out. The apostles, they pause and they, they appoint men to adjudicate, men full of the spirit, that is wisdom and respect, not uh, dislike what was done in, at the base of Mount Horeb and, 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 and revisited in Deuteronomy 1, to, those to adjudicate justice. And at the risk of being accused of being one of those preachers who makes the same application regardless of the passage, I grew up in a Baptist church, and every application veered off towards getting baptized. Let me give some specific examples of what it appears to be opportunities for God's people to champion justice in our modern age. If Brian Flores is correct, the NFL is preserving white privilege rather than doing justice. I don't know if he's right. I don't know. I know the data is fascinating, and it smells bad. So I'm not pretending to have all the facts. I am clearly aware that 70% of the NFL is made up of African-American players, and only 3% of African-Americans are head coaches. Head coaching positions are held by African-Americans. One NFL African-American coach, 3%. 
while 70% of the league is African-American. And more to my point, I know there are many, many believers in the NFL. Men and women, right, that are part of the NFL that are called to stand up for justice, to do justice. I wonder, I wonder if the American church were to opt out of the NFL until justice were done. I wonder if the American church would do that. Hold that thought for just a minute. It's sad to me that 14 historic black colleges and universities received bomb threats last Tuesday. February 1st, the beginning of Black History Month in America. So they couldn't go to class, they couldn't carry on with their daily activities. Are we champions of justice? Are we filled with wisdom and respect? Are we raising our voices to encourage those who are suffering because of racism? Or are the pulpits in America kowtowing to the pressures of white privilege? Are we saying with boldness to our brothers and sisters of color, do not be afraid. Judgment belongs to God. Why do these types of things continue in America? I think it's because the church has not been raising its voice. I think it's because the church has not been and is not fully yet a true champion of justice. I'll give you an example of what leads me to this conclusion. Do you know that the state of Mississippi included in their flag the Confederate States of America flag until the year 2021. If you're unfamiliar with this little piece of history, the Confederate States of America flag is known colloquially as the Stars and Bars. And it was, this is the Mississippi State flag over three iterations. On the far left is the flag affirmed in 1894. Now, that's 30 years after the Civil War ended. 30 years, and Mississippi knew full well what they're doing, and they put the stars and bars in their flag 30 years after the Civil War ended. And then they could have corrected it in the middle, 1996, and they doubled down 150 years after the Civil War was over. 30 years after the civil rights movement in America. And they said, no, we'll keep, the, we'll keep the Confederate flag in our state flag. They could have changed it in the year 2001. No, we're good with it. It changed last year. More to the point, it changed last year because the, the best football player in Mississippi, college football player at that time, said, I'm not playing another game until that flag changes. He happened to be African-American, and that, that got the ball rolling. Why does this matter? It matters because 83% of Mississippi's population confesses to being Christian. It's an issue of the church, folks. It's not an issue of state government. 83% of Mississippi's population claims to follow Jesus. And it wasn't until last year that the, the flag in Mississippi changed. And in a former life, I was a, 
I was an American history teacher. So bear with me a minute. In case we are tempted to make the argument that the secession of the states in the South was really an issue of states' rights, a matter of constitutionality, that those who seceded were saying, well, you can't tell us what to do. That's federal government overreach. That's how I was raised in Texas. That's actually how it's described when I was a child in Texas, that it wasn't about slavery. I sat in the classes. It was about the constitutionality of federal overreach, government overreach. In case we're tempted to believe that line of argument, can I read to you one of the articles of secession from the state of Mississippi, a direct quote, our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world. This is why they said they seceded. This is from the Articles of Secession. So the notion that this is states' rights versus federal rights, it just doesn't wash. God, who is perfectly just, gave up his privilege to come to earth. He gave up his privilege to come to earth and serve those who had offended him by sinning against his character. He showed us mercy and humility and demonstrated justice by giving his life as a ransom for many. Make no mistake. His people will do the same. His people will do the same. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for your goodness to us as a people. And we ask that you would move us on to maturity. That we would not be people of partiality, but that we would give up our privilege to advocate for the weak and the marginalized and those suffering unjustly. I pray this for the glory of our Savior and the good of his people. In Jesus' name, amen.